There are plenty of reasons why VHS was such an important format in the long and fascinating history of film. Without taking too much away from Sony's technically superior Betamax, or the various other technologies JVC borrowed from when selling VHS to the masses, the format ultimately represented a sea change in the way people consumed entertainment. When home video arrived, it revolutionised the movie industry, regardless of whether the movie industry wanted to be revolutionised or not. It offered a mass market solution for people who wanted greater freedom over how they controlled their film and TV viewing, and opened up film lovers to a whole new wealth of exciting content, content that they may never have discovered otherwise. There were some major studios, like Warner Brothers for example, who were keen to take advantage of this emerging market, but there were plenty of others who were initially very wary of what it might mean for their traditionally theatrical, out-of-home product. So, with not enough film studios producing content for home video, it's no surprise that a huge gap started to open up. And, as VCRs became more affordable to either rent or buy, it's even less of a surprise that there were certain pioneers out there that would happily step up to try and fill that gap. In the US, the likes of Lloyd Kaufman and Charles Band were busy setting up their own long-standing production and distribution empires, while here in the UK, that same spirit of entrepreneurialism was also spreading like wildfire. Independent labels like Intervision, VCL and Go Video were snapping up movies from all over the world, introducing Brits to the films of David Cronenberg, Toby Hooper and Jess Franco to name just a few. And this blew the doors wide open for other filmmakers to step in and actually create films that could be put out to a global audience on video, without the need for a huge budget or a big studio picture deal. For a few filmmakers, VHS distribution has led to critical, commercial or at least cult status in the years that followed, but the legacy of one man, a Mancunian man, has been slipping slowly through the cracks of time. The name of that man is Cliff Twemlow. Musician, writer, stuntman, filmmaker, actor, tuxedo warrior. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. When they put teeth in your mouth, they ruin a good ass. Is that right? Maybe he wants to go outside for a piss. I'll smash the bastard. You tell Harper. Donovan's on the move. Tells Big Nick rapidly when he's had enough to drink. The way we're going, it's going to be bleeding impossible. Now he's one man, right? One bleeding man! No! Hume, a suburb of South Manchester in October 1937, Cliff Twemlow was a force of nature, a man who could seemingly turn his hand to anything, and very often did. 
He spent a number of years as a club doorman, or tuxedo warrior as they were known within their own circles throughout the 1950s, providing the necessary muscle at venues in Scotland, Morecambe and Manchester, and seeing more than his fair share of the seedy and often dangerous world of nightclub policing. His first brush with celebrity came with a couple of appearances as an extra in the long-running British soap opera Coronation Street, but his first real success was in music. Cliff was an extremely prolific songwriter and made a name for himself producing songs for television, that particular name being Peter Reno. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, Cliff, or at least his alter ego Peter Reno, was busy writing songs for shows like The Sweeney and Eric Idle's Rutland Weekend Television. One track in particular, entitled Distant Hills, featured as the end credits music for a show named Crown Court, and that ran for over 12 years, ensuring a fairly steady source of income for both him and his family. But music wasn't always plain sailing for Peter Reno, as in 1973 a song written for jazz singer Selena Jones named Live and Let Die landed him in serious legal trouble. The track had been put out prior to the release of Paul McCartney's official theme for the James Bond film of the same name, and Macca was not happy. Live and let die, kiss life goodbye, watch the stranger close behind you. Running for he's gunning, you're the target. He will find you if you play with fire. You're sure to get burned when the price is your life. The final lesson is learned. Live and let die. That's your last try. Hear the countdown of your heartbeat. It grows near now. Now you can feel it like a white heat. If you play with fire, you're sure to get burned. When the price is your life, the final lesson is learned. So, as you can hear, it's pretty clear that Cliff was hoping to ride the success of the James Bond series. Instead, he ended up at the centre of a court case filed by McCartney and the Broccoli family, which pretty much killed his career and would eventually lead to his declaration of bankruptcy. A few years later, in 1978, there was some respite when one of his older recordings, originally written in 1967, was picked up for use in George A. Romero's zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead. And to this day, the song, Cos I'm a Man, is probably the one piece of Cliff's work that cult film fans are most familiar with. I never wake up early in the morning Don't get home too late at night don't believe in overworking And I never treat a woman right Cause I'm a man Cause I'm a man but despite this late resurgence, Cliff's career as a musician was pretty much over. He spent much of the late 1970s flitting from one job to another, spending time as a delivery driver, a ferryman on the Manchester Ship Canal, and again as a bouncer, this time at Peter Stringfellow's Manchester-based Millionaire Club. He wrote a book, Tuxedo Warrior, Tales of a Mancunian Bouncer, which drew on his exploits on the job and gave him a well from which a few future projects could be drawn. And the first of these was the 1982 film titled Tuxedo Warrior. But Tuxedo Warrior doesn't go looking for trouble. He is trouble. From million-dollar casinos. I'll play these. To the deadly jungles of untamed Africa. 
faces danger with desire. Oh, I love you. The exotic with the erotic. Tuxedo Warrior, one part fighter, one part lover. What you can't have, you destroy. Nobody's got a past. Nobody's got a future. He's one man against the odds. It's a high-stakes game where everyone bets their life. Remember, we're both dead. Tuxedo Warrior. He'll blow you a kiss. Then he'll blow you away. So, as you might be able to tell from the trailer, Tuxedo Warrior didn't have much in common with Cliff's tales of Manchester's mean streets and nasty nightclubs. In fact, it was pretty much Tuxedo Warrior in name only and placed an extremely fictionalised version of Cliff, played by John Wyman, at the heart of a violent South African diamond smuggling plotline. The film was, however, the start of a number of new VHS adventures for Cliff. Adventures that would also include a life and career-long friendship between him and Steve Powell, a martial arts expert in the field of Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, who also just so happens to be my childhood karate instructor. In fact, they call me one take, Steve. Whether it means I couldn't do it any better or any different, I've no idea, but no, that was my nickname, one take, Steve. <laughs> Tuxedo Warrior was being made on the kind of budget that allowed it to be shot on location in Zimbabwe, and Powell was picked out to provide the necessary muscle for some of its many fight scenes. So I was working out of the Apollo Health uh, studio on Deansgate. There's a pal of mine called John Capella, who I've known since the early 60s, you know, like weight training to, together. And uh, John mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Cliff said he was doing the uh, stunts and the, you know, the uh, fight scenes for the uh, Tuxedo Warrior. And John knew me from ages ago and said, oh, just get in touch with Steve. You know, he, he does the Filipino stick as well. And it's a Filipino stick or a stick fight that uh, Cliff wanted. So we spent about two or three weeks in his uh, back garage just working out stuff for the film. As well as a decent-sized budget and an enthusiastic cast, Tuxedo Warrior would benefit from a host of other professional contributors who were more than familiar with making movies, whether this was behind or in front of the camera. It's all shot on a 35mm and uh, all the... Like the boom staff, like Colin, he he, he done loads of films with people like you know like Susan George and uh, uh, Roger Moore and you know, you know those kind of people. And he was more of, of, of like a cine photographer. He'd make sure all the lighting was correct, sound levels were checked, you know, boom levels were, were checked. Uh, what they measure from the camera lens up to someone's nose to get the correct f numbers. You know, it's all a, a professional film crew, and, and everybody in the film had already been involved in loads of film work or uh, theatre work before and. John Wyman had just done the, the James Bond film. Is it For Your Eyes Only? I can't remember now. It, it, you know, we played some German skier with guns. John Terry had just finished doing loads of... I think he'd just done Hawk the Slayer. And uh, Jack Plant's daughter was in it. So she had, you know, you know, acting experience. Roy Boyd had done all TV a bit, like, like Crossroads and things. Andrew Sinclair had worked with people like Liz Taylor and uh, Richard Burton and under uh, Milkwood. And the cameraman, Walter Lasley, he'd uh, done things like Zorba the Greek with Anthony Quinn. 
Oscar-winning Zorba the Greek cinematographer Walter Lassily had also been responsible for Tony Richardson's 1961 classic A Taste of Honey, and adding to the aesthetic talent Brian Gascoigne, who would go on to score films like Gosford Park and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, came in to compose the music. This professional setup was all possible thanks to the rather interesting way the film was financed. Now, at the time, it was possible to raise large sums of money and sell that cash on the black market in Zimbabwe for as much as quadruple the amount. And here, a £50,000 budget was raised initially to do just that, making something like 200 grand available for production. It was financed with hard currency, you know, like British money. But when it got to Zimbabwe, they, they sold it on the black market, you know, like, you know, like a soft currency, you see. Uh, an example is the uh, air tickets were bought with Zimbabwe dollars. So when Cliff wanted to go home at Christmas to see his wife, they couldn't use the tickets on a British airline because it was made, it was bought with soft currency. So with all the right components in place, shooting began on Cliff's and Steve's movie debut, Tuxedo Warrior. The character of Cliff, played by John Wyman, was a younger actor with a very definite physical similarity to Twemlow, but without the sheer size and presence of the man himself. Wyman's Cliff is a former bouncer, but is also a slightly Bond-esque gent in a white tuxedo that's relocated to South Africa. He runs a bar and deals in lethal and quite probably illegal alcohol, which he ruthlessly punts to the locals while running a sideline in fairly corny action movie cliches. Pass that hut, you'll find the road. What's that? The king's hut? That's where I sleep. King-size hut for a pint-size heart. I sleep alone. Oh, yeah? Hello, boy! Get yourself off on him. I ride alone. Now, Cliff may be smooth, but he's secretly troubled by a past that comes back to haunt him when his ex-girlfriend Lisa, a blonde bombshell with a gambling problem played by Carol Royale, shows up with a new boyfriend in tow, right around the time he's also happened upon a stash of stolen diamonds. Now, it's these two delicate situations, a bizarre love triangle and a police hunt for hidden contraband, that give Tuxedo Warrior its main narrative though neither is necessarily the most enjoyable aspect of the film. Visually and audiologically, it works hard to achieve a real sense of the cinematic and borrows from a few different places to get there. There are beautiful sweeping shots of the Zimbabwean countryside, wonderful music cues, and lots of fun character traits that establish Cliff as a kind of hyper-real version of the man he's loosely based on, including the ability to achieve anything he puts his mind to. I stopped it. All by yourself, too. I worked at the stress factors. How much that wall could take before it broke? And a million men came along and poured some concrete onto your calculation. It worked. It held. It stopped the river. Seven men fell into the concrete while we were pouring it. They're still there. How do you know it'll always stop? It will. And if it broke? It won't. No more than we will. So yeah, according to this version of Tuxedo Warrior, Cliff was responsible for building one of the world's greatest engineering achievements, the Kariba Dam, which holds back the Zambezi River. It's silly, but it's enjoyable, and if the rest of the film was like this, it would be a fantastic watch. Unfortunately, it does lean a little heavily on the melodrama, as well as other story elements which, to some, may seem just a little bit familiar. A lot of the stuff... People like John and Terry were saying this this sounds more like Casablanca because of you know the actual storyline, you know, the diamonds being involved and over the border. So it was a bit of a Casablanca thing. 
The real Cliff Swemlow does have a small role to play as Chaser, the burly bad guy with a nasty glint in his eye, and manages to deliver a performance that hints towards his potential as an actor with real presence later. There are, however, one or two things about his delivery that Powell also has his reservations about. What about him, his voice in a Tuxedo Warrior? It's fine. I thought, you know, you know, like, why is he using that voice? Why don't he just use his normal? Well, I mean, he was told to use his his a normal voice. Overall, though, Tuxedo Warrior proved to be an interesting start for Cliff Twemlow, one that would introduce him to some of the people he'd worked with in the many years that followed, but more importantly, one that also gave him a film on his CV, a film that would soon be released theatrically and on home video in a number of global markets, though some of these would be under different names. Tuxedo Warrior was released on Atlantis Video in the UK, Sunset Video in France, ITT Contrast in Germany, FJ Lucas in Brazil and Anchor Bay in the US, and was then sold on and re-released as both The Omega Connection and The African Run in a handful of other countries. Perhaps more interestingly though, these releases show just how entrepreneurial Cliff could be, as in order to beef up the action, appeal to the home video market and expand his own screen time, Cliff shot new footage that bookended the movie. These were shot on video, completely ignoring the fact that the rest of the film had been made on 35mm. I don't know if there was some copyright infringement by doing it or whether he had some kind of rights to it, but he filmed it as the Africa run and put a top and tail to it, you know, like a different story about him going from Manchester, you know, going over to uh, Africa and he put a different end on, you know, just, you know, just like top and tail that the Amiga connection was the exact same film. Only put a, a James Bond uh, intro to it. But it was a fairly typical move for Twemlow, as over the years he'd not only prove he was willing to give anything a go, he'd also show a level of agility matched only by his sheer determination. I think he wanted to be famous. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's a driving force. Sometimes I'd say a, a ego as well. But I mean, without that, you know, the things wouldn't have got done. In the end, though, Tuxedo Warrior had felt very much like someone else's story and someone else's film. If Twemlow wanted to make something more personal, something that reflected his own experiences in the seedy nightclubs of Manchester, he'd have to use that pioneering spirit to just go out there and do it himself. Now, there was a growing market for films on home video in the UK, and with it came a real opportunity for anyone with access to the right equipment to just go ahead and make them. What Cliff had in mind, though, was much more than just low-energy thrillers, kitchen sink dramas and bawdy comedies. He didn't want to make films, he wanted to make movies. And to do this, he approached an old friend, director David Kent Watson, who would go on to be responsible for a large portion of the features he would make from here on in. I spoke to David and asked him what that particular first conversation was like. Cliff uh, came into the office we had in King Street West at the time, uh, having been out to Africa where they'd made a, um, a strange uh, film out of his book, which bore no relation to it, but it, it, the story and everything else, and obviously um, being set in Africa was slightly different. But anyway, it, was, it had all the sons and daughters of the famous actors in it, and Cliff um, played a part in it. And, uh, the, and he came back in the office one day and said, uh, we're going to make movies. So the stage was set for the film that would define Cliff Twemlow in more ways than one. Not only would GBH cover his experiences as a bouncer on the club doors of Manchester way more closely than Tuxedo Warrior ever did, it would show a level of entrepreneurship that challenged film industry standards, same way VHS and Betamax were already doing in homes across the world. 
shot on video with virtually no budget and very little permission across the streets of Manchester and its neighbouring city of Salford, GBH was cliffed back on home turf, and with David Kent Watson as his director, producer and cinematographer, it would be his magnum opus. Funded in a slightly less dodgy fashion thanks to Ingmar Rydström, the owner of a cosmetics company who lived in nearby Alderley Edge, GBH takes place across just a few locations in the city. There's a club called The Zoo, Peter Stringfellow's Millionaires Club, the Armenian Tavern on Albert Square, and wherever else in the city DKW was quick and cheeky enough to set up a camera. Cliff brought back Steve Powell, I smashed the bastard, along with unprofessional first-time actors like Brett Young and John St. Ryan. A gang was forming that would come together time and time again. What you really need is the people you can rely on and you know. Cliff knew exactly how to look after himself. Um, and all the guys did. I mean, they were genuine people. You didn't have actors who were pretending to be stumping, to, to be um, action men. They really knew how to do it. The fights were real. Um, and I think that was the, the main thing about it that, that stood them apart. Um, plus, the, but the enthusiasm, I think, came through. And even if you had people who were um, not acting like actors, which to a certain extent, that was good. Because, you know, everybody isn't an actor. When you, when you have situations in life, you don't have everyone being slick and rolling out the script. GBH featured a whole range of fight scenes, bar brawls and face-offs for Cliff, Powell and the many others they'd roped in to play parts in the film to get their teeth into. However, as Powell recalls, it was pretty much Cliff's show and his own wealth of martial arts expertise wasn't used quite as well as it could have been. I could see a lot of faults from the point of a martial artist in the fight scenes. This, this, there's a bit where we're going to war, I could do a lot of VS on knife rolls on, on his wrist and struggle I could have put in headbutts, knees and elbows, but I had to do what I'm told and have to fall down and, you know, do this stuff, you know, so... Uh, I couldn't do what I wanted to, to do because I, I have to lose in the film and I couldn't overshadow a cliff. So I was kind of hoping the class never saw the fight scene. <laughs> so unfortunately for Steve, GBH focused on the exploits of Steve Donovan, played by Cliff Twemlow, a hard-as-nails club doorman who's just been released from prison. The movie starts with some gorgeous views of the early 1980s Manchester skyline, taking in city centre landmarks like Central Library, Piccadilly Gardens, before setting on the iconic walls and imposing tower of Strangeways Prison. Here we pick up a long shot of a rather rough and ready character emerging from the doors of the prison. It's Donovan, the man they call the Mancunian. Originally the film was set to be called the Mancunian, but at some point it was decided a more brutal title was needed if it was to cash in on the increasing demand for violent and extreme movies on home video. GBH was picked out as a better reflection of what the filmmakers were actually going for, which, as the tagline on this World of Video 2000 VHS release I hold before me reveals, was something much more akin to 1981's The Long Good Friday. So, we learn that while Donovan's been away, he's lost everything. His wife's packed up and left him, he's got no money and no job. As luck would have it though, a London gangster by the name of Keller, played by 1970s comedian Jerry Harris, has decided he's going to take over Manchester's clubland by dishing out warning shots, literally, all over town. An old and apparently untrustworthy associate of Donovan's, named Murray, fearful that his club is next, realises that he's going to need to reach out to the Mancunian if he wants to protect his livelihood. Keller's back. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
Took over the rainbow rooms last night. You're joking. Chevy's came in on the doorman. Wiped the floor with him. It's my club next. The zoo. What makes you think that? Oh, come on. If Keller wants something, he takes it. Nobody can stand up to Keller. Yeah, okay, but what the hell are we going to do about it? There is one man who can stand up to him. Oh, yeah, who's that? The Mancunian. So Donovan reluctantly strikes a deal with Murray and is quickly installed as resident tuxedo warrior at his club, The Zoo, alongside an old friend named Chris. Soon the pair are busy fending off visits from Keller and his henchmen, which include Steve Powell as Greg, while enjoying all the benefits of working in a hot and sexy 80s nightclub. This means Donovan taking every opportunity to drink himself stupid, dance the night away and attempt to sleep with every girl in there that catches his eye. Interestingly for me, he happens to be doing this in a nightclub which would later be named 42nd Street, which served as a venue where I would try to do the very same on a weekly basis about 10 years later albeit with much less success. But then, I didn't go about it like this. You don't look very tough to me. Who do you expect? Charles Bronson. Look old. Too old. Why GBH is such a wonderful, wonderful film that anyone with an interest in 80s cult cinema and the home video era absolutely must see go well beyond what you might think. Sure, there are some who will watch it with a more cynical eye, but while it's certainly a film to be enjoyed with friends over a beer, there's actually much, much more to celebrate about it. First off, it's tight and incredibly well-paced. Now, at 73 minutes, you'd probably expect it to be, but what Twemlow and DKW have done is take a tidy little script that punches along from beat to beat and never leaves you waiting for something to happen. And this means regular doses of action, music, sex and comedy, which illustrate my second point about why it works. It has something for everyone. But what really sets it apart from its peers is the way the film only takes itself so seriously, managing to find plenty of moments where a wink is knowingly given to the camera. This kind of self-awareness is something we're all very familiar with today, but as Salford Film Festival programmer and Cliff Twemlow enthusiast Steve Balshaw points out, this was rare back in the age of the straight-faced 80s action movie Star, and he's more proof that Cliff was well ahead of his time. That kind of thing didn't exist then. That kind of slightly knowing, slightly ironically nuanced, tough guy, hard man. You know, if Cliff was around now, he'd be in fucking the Expendables. But Tracy, I, I know how you must feel. I mean, you don't know me from Adam. I mean, I could be the kind of a guy that takes advantage of uh, young ladies, and uh, in the past I have done, but um, you don't seem the type of girl that would let a guy, I mean... Of course, there's the sheer spirit of the film to consider too. The enthusiasm and ambition that seeps out of GBH's every pore is something that can be seen across all the Twemlow films, and ultimately is independent filmmaking born of determination and genuine joy, with a mission statement that reads, We want to make a Hollywood action film in Greater Manchester. We are going to make a Hollywood action film in Greater Manchester. It's the great spirit of of the city of Salford and Manchester too, but Salford in particular, which has always been Manchester's poor cousin. Um, but the, the people of Salford have always been very creative and very kind of 
Determined, yeah, determined, you know. Yeah, yeah, you, you dig a ship canal from, from Liverpool to Salford because you fall out with the dock workers of Liverpool. That's, 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 that's great for you. What I, I saw him as representing for Salford was something which is a very northern thing and in particular a very Salfordian thing, which is a kind of gritty, can-do spirit thing where you just go, you know what, fuck it, we'll do it anyway. And Cliff, Cliff is a pioneer in making films in the region. I mean, the history of filmmaking in the region in the Northwest is quite an unusual and fraught one. But there was Mancunian Films, which was the famous northern-based film studio that was up on Hanson Road around there, somewhere else. So what, what then became a BBC studio was where they shot the early Top of the Pops as we shot there. But originally, it was just, that was the home of Mancunian Films. And Mancunian Films made these very low-budget, largely music hall-inspired thing with people like Frank Randall and, and all these other kind of music hall grotesques in the Northwest, the you know, the brilliant Norman Evans, people like that. They eventually sold out to Butcher Brothers, who were a <clears throat> sort of exploitation filmmaking company based in London. And, um, and that was kind of it for, for Northwest filmmaking, until Cliff comes along and goes, well, you know, we've got TV facilities up here, and, you know, I've got mates who can do martial arts and stuff, let's make some action movies. And this attitude really did end up putting Manchester back on the filmmaking map. GBH was released on World of Video 2000 across the UK and was a massive success. It shot right up the video rental charts to become the ninth most rented film in Britain. It sold 10,000 copies and was pirated by thousands of people who then went on to share and trade it with plenty of other film enthusiasts too. In the, in the video chart, it's 10,000 or something, you know, in the first quarter. And lots out to libraries and everything, and that was a big flip. So that was, that was really great. They got off to a good start with that, and therefore it became easier after that. It was easier each time we did another film. Though there was only a fairly limited amount of content out there, people up and down the country were taking GBH home night after night to watch and re-watch The Adventures of Donovan, Manchester's newest anti-hero. The film had tapped into a real hunger for a certain type of movie content, one which was perfectly suited to the VHS market. This is what I think was really extraordinary about Cliff Twendler. Cliff Twendler saw what was happening very early on. He looked at this and he went, there's an opportunity here for people for the first time ever to make movies and get movies out there into the public, into the public domain, into, into, the, into the world. And yeah, let's be honest, make some money. People would be going into their video store on a Friday or a Saturday night to rent some cheap drills. It was very much, you got three, three, probably only three TV channels at the time. It was a very, very limiting, limiting era, limited era. And people were looking for something they hadn't seen before. And, you know, the whole video narrative thing got ridiculously blown out of proportion, but it was very much a thing at the time. People were looking for outrageous. I can remember this as a kid, as a teenager, the, the, you know, looking back. And I think, you know, into that landscape, Cliff strides like a colossus. He's this kind of huge, hulking. So to, it's, it, he's, all, he's like the perfect video star. He, if he'd gone to Italy, he'd have been massive, man. They'd have hired him. He'd have been in endless zombie movies. He'd have been the lead. Because he's got the presence. He's got the cannons. Um... But he doesn't do that because he because he's his own man. He wants to control his own product. He writes. He writes music. He stars. He directs. He's got you know. He's a fight arranger. He's pretty much doing all of these things himself. 
So with the success of GBH under his belt, and all the skills and people he needed now seemingly at his disposal, Cliff started looking for his next project. For a while, this looked like it might be Mason's War, an action drama based in Northern Ireland, though this would sadly end up being one of many projects that never fully got off the ground. Another was The Pike, an adaptation of a pulp novel written by Cliff in 1982 before GBH had hit video store shelves. It was one of two books he'd penned with the clear intention of seeing them on the big screen, the other being The Beast of Cain, which was pitched to the struggling Hammer films. However, while that one never got past the pitching stage, the pike wound up being much closer to being realised. Set in the idyllic British Lake District, it told the story of a massive killer fish picking off locals and visitors around Lake Windermere, and brought together a whole coast of colourful characters including a newspaper reporter, a marine biologist and a burly Scottish wildman. Before long, pre-production was in full swing and publicity was being generated around its innovative special effects. Come this summer, holidaymakers here in the Lake District will hear these shores ringing with the terrified screams of bit-part actors being turned into bits by a mechanical pike. <laughs> the pike being of the very latest in monster movies. A star that doesn't take its cues from some young hotshot director, but from a computer. One of the biggest film and TV stars of the day, Joan Collins, was on board to take a role in the film. Both Twemlow and Collins made TV appearances on BBC shows like Look North and the long-running science and technology programme Tomorrow's World. There he is. What do you think of him? I think he's very scary. What do you think of him? <laughs> um, I wouldn't like to be in a, any, any kind of water with him. Enormous. These appearances are something Balshaw remembers discussing with Manchester-based film historian and co-author of The Lost World of Cliff Twemlow, Chris C.P. Lee. <laughs> I've, seen the, I've never seen the actual programme, but I've seen the footage. I've seen the photos of Cliff walking around like a mortal being, as, as, as Chris Lee put it. He's walking around, walking around like a mortal being among us normal mortals in the Lake District, towering over everybody by about a foot. Cliff wanted to show that the UK could produce thrilling, cinematic movies that were just as good as anything Spielberg could produce, and the promotional footage for The Pike really gives you an insight into his confidence about the project. It's just that I'm interested in mysterious waters, you know, deep waters, and this lake's very deep in parts, and contrary to what people may think, I started writing this, this particular story in 1972, and I think that this was before the other film came out you, you know you refer of course to that uh, monstrous shark yes i do yeah <laughs> well we've got a, a a fresh water monster here you know as opposed to a, you know a seagoing monster is it in any way based on fact or albeit loosely well no the largest pike ever caught was 19 foot so i'm still under par 12 foot like you know and um quite recently i saw a picture of a seven foot pike and pike can be dangerous you know it's i mean there's no two ways about it Due to a lack of funding, though, and if the segment on Tomorrow's World is anything to go by, a rather temperamental mechanical pike, production stalled and the movie never got made. What's genuinely sad about this is that the timing and attached talent seems to suggest that this could have been something truly special. The pike had the potential to be a real hit, and at very least it would have put Cliff's writing out there in, as the reprinted version of the book has it, a major motion picture, which could have changed the very course of his career. 
Today, the location of the actual pike that was built and tested for the film is unknown. Some say it was on show for a while at a local Lake District leisure centre. Others have said they saw it displayed at a robotics exhibition in Japan. And there were also rumours that it was reclaimed by its creators, High Spec Systems in Ulversum, sometime back in the mid-1980s. Me, I like to think that this last story is actually slightly true, but that one night, under the cover of darkness, Cliff broke in, rescued it, and set it loose in Lake Windermere, where it still lives today, silently claiming the occasional victim. But still, the Pike, and indeed the Beast of Cain, show how Twemlow's skills as a writer, actor, musician, filmmaker, stuntman, and whatever else he had a go at, were often recognised, but never quite came with the break that he deserved. He seemed to be somebody who could turn his hand to stuff, and just get it on some level. Because he was a, he's a kind of low-level renaissance man. He's a kind of, like, Salford renaissance man. He does it all. He doesn't let the fact, he doesn't actually know how to write music, stop him from composing music. He just goes da 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 And somebody else works out what that is. <laughs> That's brilliant. After Mason's War and the Pike were shelved, another new opportunity came along that would see the whole Twemlow gang back together on the beautiful sun-kissed shores of Barbados and Grenada. Hello, Chaser. William. Hi. Listen, you and Tipper get your bags packed. We're off to Barbados in four hours. DKW had a number of contacts on the islands, having worked there before, so when Cliff came up with a script for an espionage thriller named Target Eve Island, which required an exotic setting, the two seemed like a perfect marriage. That was the first of the sort of Bond-type ones, in other words, you know, with exotic locations, and, uh, and that, was, that was tremendous fun to do, obviously, because they really enjoyed themselves out there, and uh, it, was a, it was a different style altogether, really, from, uh, from GBH. Funding for the film this time came from a contact in Manchester by the name of Martin DeRoy, but whatever cash DeRoy had fronted for the movie it was apparently not quite enough for Twemlow and DKW's ambitious plans. So to raise extra money they turned to an old trick favoured by the Italian Poliziotteschi films of the 1970s, product placement. As the lead character of the film was named William Grant, the name behind a popular brand of Scotch whisky, the plan was to put bottles of Grant's out front and centre at every given opportunity. To be honest, when you watch it, it's kind of small potatoes, particularly in terms of today's shameless product placement. But it certainly adds to the feeling that everyone in this story likes a drink. Where's is it? Yes, sir, Mr. Grant. I'll have a whiskey, please, Willis. Do you want a drink? Yeah, sure. Willis. Yes, Mr. Grant. Uh, another whiskey, please. I wasted the last one. Okay, Mr. Grant. And a vodka. Unfortunately, there was no actual deal in place with William Grant and Sons, so this was all done very much in the hope that something could be agreed later to help fund the film's distribution. But while they may not have had infinite budget, Cliff and David still managed to gather a cast and crew for a few weeks of shooting on some beautiful locations. So everybody knew one another, and, and it, was a, it was a great to be all abroad at the same time, and, and mostly I'd been to the Caribbean simply because of working there, not for holidays. And um, and it was new for everybody. So everyone was very excited, and uh, and it did uh, it did sort of pretty well, okay. As well as the regulars, there were a few new faces added to the team. Some of which would continue to pop up time and time again in the future. These included Maxton G. Beasley, a northern comic with a talent for voices, and a beautiful female model and actress named Jeanette Gray. It was a touch of genuine comic talent and a dose of glamour that gave the Watson-Twemlow partnership an extra level of quality. 
Also giving the production a bit of a boost was DKW's ability to tap into some surprising and extremely valuable resources. The Cuban army was there and had a base there, so we realised it might be a bit touchy. And I went to the, to the embassy in London and said, what we wanted to do, and I said, what, what would it be like? I mean, if we're, if we're doing something like that, maybe they wouldn't take to it too well. Anyway, he got in touch with them and they said, yeah, it's fine, come on over. And uh, we went there and um, shot in Barbados, which of course wasn't a problem, um, for a week. And then we bombed over to Grenada and the first thing we had to do was go and see Major Roberts, who was the security, head of security there. And he said, what do you want to do? And we said, well, we told him a little bit light on what the story was because uh, it must have influenced him. And, um, and, and uh, he said, well, what do you need? And I said, well... I said, there are, there are scenes, you know, involving the army and uh, various adventures uh, involving troops, etc. There are some lightweight things. So he said, okay. And all the army there basically was 16-year-old Cubans, you know, all armed up to the hills. Mm. So they thought it was great fun. So we had the, had the army available for a couple of days and we did quite a lot of shooting with them, got it all out of the way. And then basically did our sort of uh, James Bondy sort of stuff with the prime actors uh, for the rest of the three weeks. So it worked out quite nicely. Sadly, though, as perfect as the setting for Target Eve Island might have seemed to the cast and crew, it would ultimately be one of the things that contributed to it never being fully completed and released. Back in 1983, when the movie was being shot, Grenada was going through a very difficult time politically, and although the production had started well, it would eventually be shut down prematurely because of that increasingly dangerous climate. As well as the military coup, which was making for some very strange moments on set, like the time Cliff, Steve and John St. Ryan were accused of being mercenaries and almost taken into custody, October saw a military invasion by US forces, making Grenada a very dangerous place to be. Later, when the shoot had packed up and everyone was back home, it became painfully clear that there were obvious reshoots that were needed. Given the situation overseas, though, it seemed pretty unlikely this would actually happen. Listen, William, I've seen a top priority message from the CIA to our intelligence people. The US invasions to be at dawn tomorrow centred at the new airport at Point Saline. Over the next few years, they did try to get some of these reshoots done. In fact, Jeanette Gray recalls that some filming was done about five years after the fact, by which point she'd forgotten that her character had a Russian accent and did it in English. Apparently everyone else had forgotten too, as no one mentioned it. So perhaps luckily these were just some of the scenes that would never be seen again. This is Major Barrett speaking. You're to complete your assignment. Do you understand? That means the recovery of Lindenbrook and the plans, over. Look, Major, it's certain death if we go back there. All hell's breaking loose. Don't you understand? You are to complete your assignment. Out. Bureaucratic bastard. With all this confusion going on and no more money, Target Eve Island was never properly completed. The version I have is one of the unfinished edits, ripped from VHS copies, of course, but rumour has it that there was an unauthorised version of the movie that crept out somewhere under the name Operation Urgent Fury, which was also the name used by the US military for the operation to invade Grenada that year. You had a winning streak, Mr. Grant. Lucky, I guess. Just lucky. Target Eve Island's story is basically an espionage thriller, which starts out with a kidnapped female scientist who has plans for a secret weapon named Irad. These plans make her a valuable asset to the British, 
who send in their very best secret agent, William Grant, played by Brett Sinclair, to rescue her from her captor, Harry Filipino, played by Jerry Harris. Unfortunately, Irad is also wanted by the Russians, giving John St. Ryan a chance to flex his acting muscles once more as Colonel Mitri Petrovich. And what follows is a load of explosive action, car chases, boat chases, fight scenes, sex and plot twists, all with just a smattering of 007. Like the Pike, Target Eve Island is another example of a tragic lost opportunity in the whole Cliff Twemlow timeline. But while the former is sad because it never got off the ground, the latter's even more frustrating because for me, it almost certainly had the potential to be an even better film than GBH. Both films have that incredible sense of humour, but this one adds loads more action, making it a worthy watch on an entirely different level. Even seeing this incredibly rough cut of Target Eve Island, which has no score and scenes with no sound whatsoever, it's really easy to see just how good it might have been. Brett Sinclair is an excellent lead, and John St. Ryan proves to be the perfect choice as the duplicitous Petrovich. Sadly, Cliff is relegated to a virtually silent role as Chaser, or at least in this particular edit that I've seen, but as Steve Powell is let off the leash a bit more to show off his martial arts skills, there are things that make up for it. Unfortunately, though, this increased screen time for Steve Powell didn't mean any more money. On that film, I sitted on half the money up front, which was a good idea because we never got the rest of it. And Target Eve Island would end up being an example of ambition that exceeded financial practicality. The impression I get from people who knew them is that they weren't good businessmen, that they were... They, they, because they went into things with this kind of amateurish glee and, and lots of ambition and lots of goodwill and that will only take you so far it is how films get made sometimes you know it's, it's about weird deals it's, it's, not, not, it's not how careers last though. it's not how careers last it's how films often get made it's how low budget stuff happens it's how sort of left field stuff happens but it's not how you build a career no and there were loads of, I mean, you know, there were loads of um, stories about questionable activities and, you know, questionable legalities of certain things, um, which I think a lot of these things are inevitable when you're doing the kind of cut and run, low budget end of filmmaking, you know? So while they weren't proving to be the most profitable films in the world, Cliff and DKW had been getting increasingly good at sourcing the money to get their film projects together in the first place. Target Eve Island hadn't been able to get itself to a place where it could be properly released, but that didn't deter Cliff from pushing ahead with the next production, another Bond-influenced crime thriller set on a sun-drenched island entitled The Ibiza Connection. Once again, the script was written by Cliff, but for this feature, he decided to work with another director. Howard Arundel, who would go on to be first assistant director on a number of movies like Mike Lee's High Hopes and Michael Winterbottom's Jude, was given the job, and funding came from a couple of Spanish backers who saw the opportunity to show off the island at a time where its tourism industry was booming, albeit as more of a family destination than the clubland mecca it would become just a few years later. 
With all the pieces in place, it seemed once again that the Ibiza connection might prove to be the breakout hit that Cliff needed to get his film career back on track, now that the flames of success provided by GBH had started to peter out. Cliff got busy looking for a female lead for the film that would give it some real star quality and set his sights on Susan George. George was a British actress who'd already made a name for herself in films like 1971's Straw Dogs and 1974's Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, but wasn't too concerned about lending her name to exploitation titles like Tintorera Killer Shark and home video hits like Enter the Ninja. Initially, it looked like Twemlo would get his first choice, but unfortunately, he lost out when George left the production for personal reasons. As it turns out, she was having a difficult time in her relationship with a TV actor named Simon McCorkindale, who was married to one Fiona Fullerton, the woman who ended up taking the job instead of George. Fullerton's probably best known as the Bond girl that features in 1985's A View to a Kill, but here she plays Jane, the glamorous wife of a gangster who causes untold problems for Cliff's character, Wolf. The story follows the making of an action movie called Thunder Flash, on which Wolf is director and stuntman. When the shoot runs into financial trouble, Wolf turns to a gangster friend named Gino Verardi, played by Maxton Beasley, who says he can have the cash with two provisions. One, his wife Jane must be installed as the female lead, and two, she must be allowed to pick out her male co-star, which she does when she claps eyes on the dashing Brett Sinclair. Would you like to be my new leading man? Now hold it. We have an agreement. Your wish is my command. If you really believe, I can do it. Oh, I believe. Okay, let's all return to Earth. I mean it, Wolf. I appreciate your offer, Miss Verardi, but I... If I don't get him, I'll walk out. It would appear I have no alternative. It's a story of ambition, guerrilla filmmaking in a foreign country, and getting funding from questionable sources in order to get things done. What could be a clearer example of Cliff's art imitating his rather strange life? You should have been a millionaire by now. You could have been a millionaire. You spent too much time on the wrong side of the camera. Uh, too much time. Too much time wasted. You cannot, you cannot direct, but you have a charisma. You have a screen presence. You know, when you were in a Ring of Steel, you stole the show. Your raw aggression stood out like a burning flame in the dark. There were a few new toys to play with on the set of the film as well, including a souped-up Ford Capri named Striker that featured mounted rocket launchers, and also a giant missile built by the same British team that created Cliff's ill-fated mechanical pike. Once built, though, this particular piece of equipment needed to get to the set in Ibiza, so in typical Twemlow style, it was strapped to the back of a Salford Van Hire truck and ferried up the motorway with Cliff behind the wheel. Sadly, they didn't have anything to cover it up, so they made the journey to the airport and attracted plenty of attention along the way, particularly when they accidentally joined a CND protest which wrongly assumed the missile had been sent to support their demonstration. Uh, while I remember, we got the missile coming in by road today. Good publicity, eh? Yeah, you make sure no one flies away with it. Ultimately, the Ibiza connection would be plagued with distribution problems and, despite being shown a number of times on Spanish television, was never picked up for the UK home video market. This would have been music to the ears of its lead actress, Fiona Fullerton, though, who did everything she could to distance herself from it and was quite open about how she hoped it would never see the light of day. In fairness, though, it is a pretty ropey film that's let down by a number of poor decisions. Among these are the rather dated homosexual cliches. What kind of action? No, you're kind, sweetie. You know, sometimes you can be a bitch. Incredible levels of misogyny. 
Don't ever show me up again, woman, or I'll kill you. <gasps> not again, Wolf. Please, not again. And lengthy, drawn-out sequences like those which see Cliff wandering about Ibiza, scouting for sets, squeezing women's bottoms, and talking in a rather terrible faux American accent. But worse than all of that is the rather distracting sound mix, which has way too much music and truly awful dubbing that uses Maxton Beasley to revoice almost all of the supporting cast. Wolf, this is my lawyer, Mr. Jonathan Hargreaves. Nice to meet you. Goodbye. I'm busy. I think you don't understand. I don't usually tell people twice. You see, the man is impossible. I want the film stopping. Yes, I agree. But this was a film that, against all the odds, managed to get done. And it's important to remember that in the early 1980s, the world was a much larger place. So the fact that it got made in a foreign country with a full cast and crew and no studio backing is in itself an impressive feat. DKW, who has a directing credit for the film despite not being involved, says this is reflective of the way he approached the movies he made with Cliff, prioritising the thrill of the work over the potential for profit. We produced a product that far outshone the money that was, that was spent on it, uh, and it would never have got made in the first place had the money been more, because there weren't the budgets around to do them. Uh, they were done with people's enthusiasm, and uh, and uh, and that's how they got made, and how we made quite a few films. If you'd been waiting for the profit from the first one to make the second one, then probably you'd never made the second one. The good thing about what we did was we made them and put them out. We either, in fact, um, you know, went to an agent and said, you know, yeah, sell it wherever. Um, and that's it, you, you stood and fall by, by what somebody's doing, not having to sell it in terms of like TV, or if it's goes to TV companies, spend ages, and by the time you've done it and perhaps got something, you, you've lost interest. By the mid to late 1980s, Cliff Twemlow and his associates had started to build a collection of highly enjoyable films. Some of these were readily available on video store shelves across the UK, Others could only be picked up in certain foreign markets, and others still were being circulated only around those who knew the people that made them. For this podcast, I've been able to track down VHS copies of the films that were released in Britain, and through speaking to the people involved, have acquired VHS rips of all the others. And I can honestly say that, while some are most certainly better than others, I've enjoyed each and every one of them, and have loved exploring the world around Cliff Twemlow, his books, his music, and the story of his life. Unfortunately though, it's around this time in his short career that we start to see the home video market change. After the introduction of the Video Recordings Act in 1984, which was introduced primarily to address the moral panic around the video nasties, there seemed to be less room for independent innovation. The major studios, many of which had been fearful of VHS and what it meant for their theatrical model, had flooded the shelves with BBFC-approved releases of their big-budget productions. So when the time came to release a film like 1988's Predator the Quietus, Twemlow would be faced with problems like having his movie sit on the same shelf as the similarly titled Schwarzenegger blockbuster, which had all the budget and marketing power of CBS Fox Video behind it. In that case, Cliff simply renamed the picture, so the story of the mysterious beast loose in the forest of Ireland and the man charged with the task of killing it 
became Moonstalker. However, it was a sign that the big boys were back in town, and just like the independent video stores which were about to be crushed by Blockbuster, there would be little room left for small operations who just wanted to have their share of the home video revolution. The knock-on effect of films like Moonstalker being forced into going up against the bigger studio titles is that now, they're films that have truly been pushed into obscurity. If you want to watch a Twemlow movie, you're either going to need to track down one of the rare VHS releases, happen upon one of the few deleted short-run DVD releases, or find some enthusiast who has a rip of them stashed away on a hard drive somewhere. All of which, in a world where companies like Shameless, Arrow and Shout Factory are doing a roaring trade in exploitation releases, really makes you reconsider exactly what a cult film is nowadays. We, we take for granted now that everything is available somewhere, either online or it's, you can find it on a DVD, and the notion of something having a cult status now is, is, is kind of, oh yeah, this is a cult book. No, it isn't. You can buy it in Warstones, you know? It's a cult film. No, well, it, it might be a cult film, but you know, it's it's readily available from 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 every high street store now. It's not like it was wildly obscure and you were struggling to find it for decades. And you know, sometimes obviously that's great. You know, you've got comics like Shameless that are putting out all the the Gala stuff, and it's fantastic. Some of the stuff they brought out has been wildly obscure for decades, and now it's available. But um, Cliff has fallen between the cracks. Now it's clear that I think this is a tragedy. Aside from the effortless charm and pioneering spirit that I've already mentioned, Cliff's films are a time capsule, featuring a local hero who did everything within his power to create a one-man movie industry in Manchester. But beyond my affection for them, there are reasons I believe they need to be seen by others, to be enjoyed by people who truly appreciate cinema that exists on the very fringes of the industry. Reasons why I desperately hope that someday they are rediscovered, and not lost to time as format after format races on and threatens to leave them behind. It's difficult to talk about any of these things, to talk about the legacy of Lyft, to talk about, you know, why they're so charming, why they're so... Because it's, it's... I mean, some films just have that, I think. It's, it's, it's a kind of... 
And we, we're looking at it as Northerners. We're looking at it from our point of view and going, ah, oh, yeah, it's nice to see. But I don't think that that's, you know, it's not like, hey, you know, it's not like the Northwest doesn't appear on TV and films a lot these days. It does. Uh, and even then it did. I think it's the sense of watching it thinking, good on you. You achieved something. You did something. You went out your way and you did something. Well, the story doesn't end there because Team Twemlow continued to get things done well into the late 80s and early 90s. After Moonstalker, there was a side project named Into the Darkness, which was penned by Brett Sinclair, John St. Ryan and David Kent Watson, which was once again shot on video for the video market. This was a slasher piece that lived in the same narrative neighbourhood as Michael Powell's Peeping Tom or Bill Lustig's Maniac, and had plenty going for it. It's an effective and occasionally tense affair, though it does meander from time to time, but perhaps most interestingly... It features a couple of small star turns from big names like Donald Pleasance and Ronald Lacey. The latter, most people will know as the melty-faced Gestapo agent that gets his just desserts at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sadly, Cliff didn't make an appearance in that film, but he would be reunited with DKW in the years that followed for at least five other projects, one of which was another foray into the horror genre, 1991's The Eye of Satan, which was released on HE Video and is an interesting one to look at as it combines so many disparate elements and yet still manages to be incredibly enjoyable. Since the beginning of time, man has always had an inherent fear of darkness. The deep belief that hidden within the black chambers of night, terrible and powerful satanic forces are watching and waiting to strike some unsuspecting soul. Now the belief becomes reality in the form of Cain, Satan's disciple. The power is real. The terror exists. It's here, now amongst us. Cain is both man and beast, an indestructible killer, the ultimate assassin, the lover. He is here amongst us to prepare his master's return. Eye of Satan introduces the idea of a supernatural beast or being, which may or may not be Cliff's character Kane, as well as a mysterious talisman that appears to be the source of his power. At the same time, there are police investigations into a shooting at a funeral, family dramas around a wayward daughter, and even an unexpected layer of political scheming. Your father sold me arms to aid my campaign against the British. Tyranny that still exists in the Middle East. Behind this serene, colourful cloak of democracy, illustrated in the safe congenital trappings of Britain, lie the sleeping dogs of war. It's a lot to take in, that's for sure, but at its core, Kane glues it all together and is in many ways similar to Cliff's other character, Donovan, in that he's a mysterious but lethal figure who seems capable of doing things no one else can, albeit here in a more fantastical setting. So these abilities, which include teleportation and anamorphism, seem to be rooted in a voodoo or Satanism and complement a religious tone that crops up throughout, serving as a gentle reminder to 70s horror classics like The Omen. Believe me when I tell you that there are people who walk on the edge of darkness 
People with evil forces, forces that only God himself can combat. The man you look for is one of those people. I'm looking for some weirdo that's got a cat as a companion. Even you don't believe that, Mr. Chase. So there's plenty to like about Eye of Satan. The horror elements aren't quite as strong as the moments of gritty gangster drama and double crosses, but there's a certain quality to it that's helped along by a solid score and some decent performances. By now, Cliff had owned his acting skills, and while the film occasionally takes itself a touch too seriously, it doesn't forget to throw in that odd dose of self-aware northern humour. Where do you come from? From a world too incomprehensible for mere mortals to understand. A land that lies beneath a cloak of unending darkness. No night or day sun or moon warmed only by the eternal flame of the master a world where only true immortality can exist bullshit like all the films cliff and dkw made together i have satan enjoys a very fast and loose approach to filmmaking now that may sound like i'm damning it with faint praise but as ken watson himself explains this is what gives a lot of the movies they did together that unmistakable energy. You, you, you find some of the best shots in films are the ones you didn't plan. It just so happens, the lighting is just how it is, the actor does this thing, um, and it's uh, why, in fact, I've always preferred to um, shoot camera and direct, simply because, you know, if you've got two people doing those jobs, then the cameraman's going to say to the guy, well, shall I do this, shall I do that? If you're directing and doing the camera work, you don't have to ask. You see an opportunity and you react. I mean, I think that was a good thing, the fact that Cliff and I got on so well is because we, we were looking for the excitement in the picture rather than it being uh, too well too well planned. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why it was right, was that, that you haven't got films where everyone's trying to act like the big stars. They're being natural, and this is the whole thing about Northwest, really. It was the fact, I think, they were taken that way. And, and that's why people said that these are, these are natural films. This is, this is the way we'd like to see. This is real life. This realism was revisited in the next film Kent Watson and Twemlow would make, which was also the only sequel in their collective filmography. GBH2, Lethal Impact, brought back the character that started the whole thing for another adventure, by first of all revealing that Steve, the Mancunian Donovan, was very much alive and living in Malta, but that before long, he'd be back on familiar soil. Manchester. Reputed to be one of Europe's most violent cities. Nevertheless, this is my city where nighttime brings out all the dregs and dropouts of society. They come alive and manifest along the back streets and sidewalks. Pimps, hookers, drug pushers, all trying to sell their illicit wares. Child pornography is rife. Children aren't safe anymore. The fact is, no one can be safe anymore. Perhaps a little bit harsh and unlikely to have been looked upon favourably by the Manchester Tourist Board, but you must admit it sets a pretty intriguing scene. Anyway, after a visit from his old nemesis, Keller, on the island of Malta, 
Donovan realises that he needs to go back to the city of filth and child pornography to take care of some very unsavoury business involving a collection of gangsters with business interests that make Keller look like Father Christmas. Your little niece, my son, is in a porno movie. <laughs> You're a lying bastard, Keller. You see, I'm no saint, Donovan. Roughing kids will be protected. Spare me this shit. So while GBH took its inspiration from seminal British gangster flick Along Good Friday, this sequel seems to look further back to films like 1971's Get Carter and 1974's Death Wish. In fact, having already tried to get a film off the ground named The Blind Side of God, which dealt with a very similar subject matter, it seemed Cliff was pretty keen to wash this particular form of scum off his streets. I'm the only lawyer you have to worry about, son. By the time GBH2 came around, the market for violent action films was a lot better established than it had been in the early 1980s. With that in mind, it was typically ambitious of Cliff and DKW to pursue a second outing for Donovan, particularly as it largely ignored his background as a tuxedo warrior in favour of a much more ruthless Bronson-esque depiction of a man taking the law into his own hands. The film didn't really need the GBH precursor and in fact dropped it when Alan Bleasdale's immensely popular series GBH proved a massive hit for Channel 4. But as Steve Balshaw points out, it's no real surprise that Twemlow decided to go back to the franchise that established his on-screen career on home video, even if it was just to borrow the name. Within just within a historical context, and it's worth mentioning that GBH was number nine best rented video, because that's extraordinary. It really is. Because that would be at a time when you could get, like, Indiana Jones. I mean, it, 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 those films were out there on video by that point, on rental. GBH won, and, and did, did well. I mean, selling 10,000... Sets, you know, it was obviously pretty good. The only problem was that the, the, the Swedish backers, in fact, uh, I think they went back to Sweden, um, so they didn't follow up with GBH2. So GBH2 was a totally self financed, you know, no one else came in with any finance at all. It's just Cliff and I did it. Mm. And the guys joined in for what they were there to do it for. So the man, 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 Mancunian man was set to return. But if the film was to compete in the modern market, there would need to be certain upgrades that left behind the soft and fuzzy world of video, which had sufficed in the early 80s. GBH1 was shot with Umatic tape, which was an industrial um, tape that we used uh, for doing our commercial work promoting airline companies or doing bits of commercials, things like that. By the time we did um, GBH2, we'd gone over to Beta Cam, so it was a much better quality. It, it was much easier to shoot because um, the, the equipment took more highlights, so you didn't have this, if you remember in the old days, the smearing that used to happen when people panned across lights and things like that. That no longer happened. Because you, you didn't have tube cameras, which we had to start with. Um, they were um, I, uh, integrated circuit uh, things and the uh, uh, targets were, were um, solid state. So you didn't have smearing. So it meant you could be much freer uh, with moving shots, uh, running shots, for instance, which were difficult to do with tube cameras and, and tape at that time. Whereas the beta cam was a much more solid professional system and the cameras, you could point them wherever you like without fear of burning. So it was able, we were able to do much, much better quality of shoot. 
and I guess that's and for that reason it was uh, more saleable because it was uh, television standard pictures as opposed to being um, video standard pictures, if you like. So that was the biggest difference. GBH Two Lethal Impact is another roller coaster ride from Team Twemlow, and it's great to see the character return in a film that looks more accomplished visually and sees him out on a genuinely angry, vengeance-fueled mission to take down some particularly nasty pieces of work. She couldn't live with the shame, Steve. Catherine took her own life. God, I had no idea. When I telephoned, you you never even let on. You, you never said. It was your sort of company that was responsible. Slime. Dirt. Get out, we don't need you. Don't say that. Catherine loves Steve. Oh, yes. Uncle Steve, the hero. Reliable for birthdays and Christmases. Pretending to be half decent. She loved you. We never told her what you were really like. He would never have harmed Catherine. You know that. I know who's responsible. I'll find them. And I'll fix them. You'll do nothing. Why don't you crawl back to where you came from? close to the sewer. At least I know which way the filth is moving. It's pretty clear that, while this is the same hard-drinking, womanising, tough guy who donned the white tuxedo in the first film, Clifford come to realise that the character would need to grow up a bit now that the early 90s were upon him. Ultimately, this means Donovan is a bit more castrated, though, and perhaps takes himself a touch too seriously, certainly much more seriously than he did ten years earlier. But in the end, you can't help but get on board with his new quest for justice. So, by 1991, Twemlow had ventured into a number of genres, including action, horror and espionage thriller. What could be more ambitious than that? Well, how about science fiction? That's right, having conquered Earth, it was time for Cliff to launch into space. Firestar First Contact would be one of two feature-length movies he'd appear in during what would ultimately be the end of his career. Full-blooded hit trooper, what's up with control? Lasers are ineffective. I'm reloading with Zycon missiles. And if these don't work, we'd better find a place to hide. But sci-fi movies don't come cheap, so the team would need to use everything at their disposal to get the film in the can. So they sourced cash from a number of different places, among them being a VHS rental company based in nearby Bolton, and drafted in loads of help to get the all-important feel of the picture right. Well, I think the, the, the good thing was that um, Steve um, was able to build a set in a shed which would look extremely like what most people would think um, a cramped um, spaceship looks like. Um, it was very cramped and very difficult to shoot in, in fact, because of that. Uh, but the entire thing of having different floors there was just done with lighting. So we just changed all the colour lighting. And instantly we were in sort of another set. So it was all shot in a very small space. And I think because of that, it, it, uh, it was what gave it so much. And all this hard work could well have paid off, as Firestar First Contact was written to be part of a trilogy. And even though Firestar Second Contact was never prepared for launch, its stratospheric ambitions had already attracted some rather legendary cast members. It was supposed to be a three-part series. 
Um, and, um, and that, that was a shame that we, we couldn't go on and do more. Because Oliver Reed was going to be playing in one of the other, in, in other parts of the series. And, um, which would have been great. Uh, but unfortunately he didn't, he didn't last too long. And, um, and that was sort of the end of that idea. If I'm being honest though, this is probably the one entry in the Twemlow catalogue that's perhaps the most difficult to watch. In some respects this is because it feels very much like a last ditch attempt to catch up with an industry that had by this point grown far beyond the reach of its creators. But it's also because the ambition and determination that fueled Cliff's career is just stretched a little bit too far. I think some other films probably stand the test of time better than others. The Donovan films stand the test of time. They're rough, but they stand the test of time. The science fiction movie, less so. Um, but it's fun. It's fun. Happily, though, back on planet Earth, there was one last adventure left that brought Cliff and his friends together once more. Bad Weekend was a 35-minute tale that had nothing to do with aliens, spaceships and outer space shenanigans and put the Twemlow gang back on terra firma. Shot on location in Style Country Park, just outside Manchester and on a budget of £1,000, Bad Weekend brought everything right back full circle. It was a low-budget, locally shot, on-the-fly film that incorporated sex, violence and dark humour. It's the story of a gang of roughnecks out causing trouble in the woods who happen upon a father and daughter who are out for a quiet weekend in the wilderness. Led by Cliff as the character of Hawk, this gang have other ideas and set upon their little camp, assaulting the father, then raping and killing the daughter. What follows is a last house on the left style tale of revenge which pits the father, equipped with his trusty bow and arrow, up against the hoodlums. Steve Powell, who had genuinely honed his acting skills and been given more to do than ever before in Bad Weekend, remembers that even shooting one of the darker moments of the script, this just felt like a bunch of mates fooling around in the woods. There's a, like a rape scene in a, in a, inside a tent, and Dave's inside with his camera, so all his screams and shouts are bloody coming out from this tent, and we're sat outside on this log down to the teeth and people walking past. It's OK, look, we're just making a film. Originally intended to be the first of a series that would take advantage of Cliff's prediction that one day soon everyone would be watching stuff on their computers, Bad Weekend is a wonderful last hurrah for the gang that shows off a bit about everything they'd learned up until this point. Like so many of the projects Cliff embarked upon, it was also ahead of its time. He saw it as a potential web series long before such things existed and figured it was worth filming for when technology was able to catch up. He was already exploring how modern software like Adobe After Effects could enhance his films and was excited about the many advances in satellite, digital and internet-based broadcasting. Speaking to David Kent Watson, Steve Powell and some of the other people associated with the Twemlow gang, one thing seems to be abundantly clear. If Cliff had stuck around, they'd all still be making films together to this very day. Between them, there are still unrealised ambitions around film, and whether it's resurrecting the great work that they did in the past, or looking to extend its legacy into the future, there's a genuine sense that everyone involved takes great pride in what they achieved with each of these films. All of this makes you wonder, imagine what delights Twemlow would still be serving up today if he were around to curate his very own YouTube channel. I have to tell you, it genuinely makes me sad to think that we'll never know. Cliff died on May 5th, 1993, aged just 55 years old. Around the time of Bad Weekend, he'd apparently become unhealthily obsessed with his body, and in an attempt to stay young and fit enough to do the things he'd loved doing the most, he began pushing himself much too far. You know, it was sat on me Saturday, 
two weeks before he went and his shoulders were this thick, you know, from, from the side. I'd never seen him so big in all my life. And that he died of a heart attack and the autopsy revealed that there was furrows on his heart. His heart had enlarged and was pressing on his ribs. You know, men lives, well, hearts and muscles, you see. Yeah, it's a shame, you know, I mean, we'd, we'd still be making films now if we wouldn't have done that. Cliff was supposed to be coming out to work with me in, in Malta. He was going to run a gymnasium there. And I came back to see him uh, sort of a few weeks before he was due to come out. And I couldn't believe what he looked like. And I said, what's happened? He said, oh, these guys, in fact, have set out to do weightlifting. Um, and powerlifting and, and you know, get into that scene. And I, I just, I was just horrified. Um, because what I'd known wasn't there anymore. And I, I went back to Malta and then four weeks later he died of a heart attack. You know, I lost one of my best friends. But while the death of Cliff Twemlow is most certainly a tragedy, his life is truly something to be celebrated. Whether he was writing, making music, or shooting movies, he lived every day to the fullest and had a unique ability to get those around him as excited about his endeavours as he was. Speak to anyone who knew him, and they'll tell you he was a man of great warmth, passion, and unbridled ambition. Someone able to look at a situation and not see problems, but possibilities. What the video revolution did, the videotape revolution did, for a very, very brief time, a very, very brief time, was democratise film to an extent because the stuff that was out there was so odd there was no as you know there was no Hollywood was kind of behind the curve in putting that stuff out uh, so all this weird stuff was leaking out and so in that period at that moment in time Cliff could come along and go hey there's a market here for me to do what I'm doing because you've got people who don't uh, behave like actors then it had reality, and I think that sort of reality check was something where people would think, well, what's going to happen here? Even if they were waiting for you to fall on your backside, and then at the end said, well, it wasn't bad, actually. And I think that's, for someone to be pleasantly surprised at how well, you know, a bunch of guys had done, it was far more, far more appreciative of that than having all the money in the world. And then people say, yes, it's okay. Yes, it's, it, you know, you can see where the money went. I mean, everyone just, you know, just put the heart and soul in it. You know, like uh, uh, Clint Eastwood always works with, with the same people and Charles Bronson's always got his wife. It's a bit like that, you know, just a click of uh, people, yeah. They're probably because we didn't mind uh, not getting paid. <laughs> so much of the history of cinema, of film, is disappearing. It's being rewritten. History always gets, always gets written by the winning side. Case in point, if you were, you know, a few years ago, I can remember going to um, the Museum of the Moving Image in Bradford and realising that somewhat, sometime in the year or so since I'd been previously, the history of photography had suddenly become the Kodak history of photography. And suddenly it was all about Kodak's achievements in photography. And, and I was sitting there thinking, yeah, but they didn't. <laughs> there were all the companies that did photography and they'd all been written out. So you, you get this kind of thing happening. And Cliff is an obscure footnote in the history of film. Well, not even film, video. But I think he's an obscure footnote that, that should, be, should be explored because he was somebody who said, right, you can do this. He's somebody who was an early pioneer of do-it-yourself, can-do filmmaking. I mean, Cliff was a... 
you know, he, he could just walk in in, 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 in the room and uh, people would stop and look at him. He always kept himself, you know, well-dressed, you know, and in good physical shape, yeah. There's kind of like an aura about him. It, it, you know, we'd walk into a, a Pepino's in town and people would just stop and just look. Who were these two walking in? He's probably just Cliff, like, but I mean, I mean I've seen him walking around northern in, in the middle of winter wearing a, a, a little vest. <laughs> but I mean, above all of these things, above all of this stuff about historical significance, about him as an inspiring figure for another generation of filmmakers. I think the films have charm and warmth and heart and they are a testament to what a bunch of mates can do when they just get just get above themselves in a way and go, right, you know what, let's make a movie, let's compete with Hollywood, let's do, or at least let's compete with Andy Sidaris. I mean, you know, they, 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 were, they were competing in that market. They were looking at, you know, exploitation cinema. And so, you know, they shouldn't be forgotten for that reason. You know, there was joy of creation. So I suppose, yes, we did something pretty special at the time, uh, which I will always look back on with affection, you know. Along with his trusted friends, just a couple of which you've heard from here, Cliff carved out a slice of the film industry all for himself. He did this by embracing the home video revolution and recognising its ability to fuel his own adventures in VHS. And for that, Mr Twemlow... This podcast salutes you.